So what I've titled this message is The Day of the Empty Tomb, because his tomb is empty. And with his resurrection from the dead, he made the way available for us, possible for us to be saved, saved from our sins, saved into eternity. But he didn't just save us so we could run around serving just as servants. He saved us to be adopted into his family. That he saved us from our sins and he didn't just leave us there. He then goes on to the next step of adopting us into his family that we are children of God. Ephesians 1 verse five to six says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now let me tell you, that beloved is with a capital B. It is talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that we are accepted as children of God into the family of God. And that is what we celebrate today, that in his resurrection, we too have resurrection life granted to us. Now my first point is there's only one risen Lord. There is only one risen Lord. Every other religion has an ending which is unsure. Every single person in any other religion on the face of this earth today might have an idea taught to them by their religion of what they can expect when they physically die. But they only find out when they physically die. Christianity is the exception. Where first of all, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Amen, absolutely. But secondly, our judgment takes place the day we give our lives to God. Did you know that? And we are not judged. Jesus is judged on our behalf. So when we pray the scripture, as quoted in, in Romans 10, verse 9 to 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confession made unto salvation. In that moment, judgment takes place. Judgment on Jesus. Our sin placed on Jesus, his righteousness placed upon us, and in that moment we pass from death to life while we're still living and breathing on this earth. Now what that means is the rest of your life is lived out in gratitude for the judgment that has already taken place. And when you physically die, it's a blip in eternity. You literally just pass from this life to the next, but you're just as much alive in your spirit now as you will be in eternity. That is the glorious truth of Christianity. That is why we can be so proud of what Jesus did for us. To magnify him and honor him and extol him because we have already passed from death to life. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 says, we are confident, yes, well pleased. Rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's immediate. It's just like that, because our spirits are already alive in him. And this flesh will die, but God has got a new glorified body for us one day as well. Now, every other religion is looking towards the day of their death as the day they finally find out. For the Muslim, it'll be whether he's done more good than bad. For the Hindu, it's do I progress in karma or not? For the Buddhists, they're hoping to just actually lose their sense of self and become nothing with the universe. 
And all of those are false because there is only one name given amongst men under heaven by which we can be saved. And that is Jesus. Amen. Now, the world sometimes has a perception that our God is weak. He is not weak. Never stand and let someone speak ill about your God in your presence without raising your voice and saying, no, 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 wait. You don't speak about my Jesus like that. Let me tell you what he did. He died to save you from your sins. At times, we see in the world the blasphemy and the putting down and the ridicule that comes against the Lord and his people. It's only his name that is taken in vain in so much of the entertainment that we see and experience in this day and time. But at no stage was Jesus, is Jesus ever in his existence less than lion and lamb. His time on earth was a ministry of coming to serve, to save that which was lost. It was a lamb ministry. He laid down his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down of his own choice to save us and restore us to the family of God. But he never ceased being the lion of the tribe of Judah at the same time. We had moments, glimpses of this awesomeness of his glory. One of them was when he was transfigured. He went up the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured before them. And he shone with the glory that, that he has always and ever had. But another chance or another time where his lion of the tribe of Juno was, was manifested was when he drove the money changers out of the temple. And if I was to sound like a Southern Baptist preacher, it'd be like, I do believe those boys felt the whip of the lion that day. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> the Lord is mighty and powerful lion and lamb. I wanna just quickly give an example of the Apostle John, the, the apostle of love. Now he had an incredibly close relationship with Jesus. He was the one who laid his head upon Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. There was this understanding, this revelation, this depth of acceptance in the Lord. The Lord loved him and he loved the Lord that was unquestioned. But at one point in his ministry, when he's an old man and he's in exile on Patmos, the Romans had tried to boil him in oil and he didn't take. So they took him out and they put him on an island. God still had purpose because he had to write the final book of the Bible. And the Lord appears to him, but differently to how he knew him at the Last Supper. He hears a voice speaking behind him in Revelation 1, and he turns around, and this is what he sees. There were eight things, and I'm just gonna read them to you out of Revelation 1. John sees a garment to the Lord's feet. He sees his chest girded with a golden band, his hair white like snow and wool, and his eyes a flame of fire. His feet like brass as refined in a furnace and his voice as of many waters. A sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and his countenance shining like the sun, shining in its strength. What an incredible description of Jesus. John's reaction, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. And here we see this beautiful picture of Jesus in his glory. We have the picture of Jesus as the lamb in the ministry that he came and shared with us in the gospels. But he has and never will cease being. He is and always will be, let me rather say, both lion and lamb. And we 
can celebrate him and venerate him and extol him and lift up his name always. Be proud of who you serve. So one thing you can be proud of, be proud of your God. Love him and honor him. Amen. So, we have passed from death to life in this life. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your, on page two. <laughs> oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? We've passed from death to life in this life. We serve a mighty God. Now, my second point I wanna share with you is his resurrection power displayed. Because Jesus rose from the grave. We know this, that is what we are celebrating today. But he also made his resurrection power available to us. It wasn't just him that experienced resurrection power, but in his resurrection power, he gave off his own resurrection power to us by his spirit. In fact, it was the Holy Spirit that resurrected him. Let's read together in Romans 8, verse 11. Don't worry, I'll send you to a few scriptures later. You'll get to use your Bibles today. I'll give you my word. All right. Romans 8, verse 11 says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, there we have it, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And we have a promise here that as we have been saved and his resurrection power has saved our spirits, he's also got resurrection power for our bodies, but it's not just our bodies. He came to redeem us body, soul, and spirit, and he has a desire to heal our hearts and heal our souls and resurrect us if we find ourselves in a place where we did not expect to be. Now, someone who experienced a real setback in their life was Peter, and I wanna use him as an example to you today of the Lord's resurrection power at work. Peter was one of the three. He was one of those that were taken into the Lord's confidence. Very often it was just Peter, James, and John that were included in certain things, such as Jairus's uh, child's resurrection, or the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was one of those three. He was very close to Jesus, but he was really a man of ups and downs. He was a man of, of, of extremes. He might be the one walking on water, but then he's the one that Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. He would be the one that would, uh, he was always just at the forefront of something that was happening. That was Peter. He was just a man that was always in action, and the Lord had his eye on him, and the Lord loved him deeply, make no mistake. He was the one who said to the Lord when the Lord wanted to wash everyone's feet, he said, Lord, not just my feet, but my, my hands and my head as well. And the Lord says to him, no, just your feet is enough. But on the night that Jesus is going to be crucified, Peter has his greatest setback. And the Lord even warned him. He said, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter doesn't believe him. He says, even if I'm to die with you, I will die with you, but I will not leave you. And so he just doesn't believe what Jesus is saying. And he starts out kind of strong because in the garden where he's arrested, he's the one who cuts off the high servant's ear. Jesus heals that ear, tells him to put away his sword, but he follows Jesus. And he comes to the place where Jesus is being tried. And 
Jesus' words then begin to be fulfilled and he experiences this huge setback in his life. I would say the greatest trial he ever experienced was on this night when he denied the Lord because he did deny the Lord. And his first denial was to a servant girl. And his second denial, just to keep the momentum, was a servant girl. And then his third denial was to a small group of people. But even upon his third denial, he actually, in Matthew 26, verse 74, says that he called down curses and made oaths that he did not know Jesus. That is a serious, serious denial. That's not just keeping quiet to one side and if someone says, do you know know Jesus? And you keep quiet and you just kind of look at the ground and shuffle away. This is Peter declaring with curses that uh, he doesn't know the Lord. And when he hears the rooster crowing, it says that he went out and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. He had the revelation of what he had done and it hit him hard. In fact, it hit him so hard that we get an indication upon his resurrection of how hard it hit him. And what I mean by that is two of the ladies go to the tomb. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene. They go to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday only to find it empty. And they, an angel meets with him there. And the angel gives him this message. The angel says to the Marys, but go, tell his disciples This is in Mark 16, verse seven. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Tell his disciples and Peter. Why was that put in there? It's very interesting. It's not in there by mistake. And I'm telling you, it is my heartfelt opinion that that Peter disqualified himself from being one of the disciples after his denial of the Lord. Because otherwise, this would have read, go tell his disciples that he is going before you. But they say, go his disciples, tell his disciples and Peter. Jesus even alludes to this. Listen to Luke 21, verse 31 to 32, where he's warning him, trouble's coming. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. When you have returned to me. That speaks about a short season where he wasn't with the Lord. Not because the Lord had let him go, but he had disqualified himself. He needed deep and meaningful restoration in his life. He needed an experience of the Lord's resurrection power upon him. And that is exactly what happened. Now, when the Marys come and give this message, Peter and John then start making their way to the tomb. And uh, John is quite humble in his gospel because he says the other disciple. But it, prior to that, just says that, that, that uh, Mary came and told John and Peter that the tomb was empty. So they both start moving towards the tomb. And that's what the word says. And so they're moving. And then you can just imagine them, all of a sudden, it becomes a bit of a dicing session because one will look at the other one, they start moving a bit faster, stop moving, and then all of a sudden, bang, there they go. Because it says that they ran to the tomb. However, John gets there first. It says it there, just like that. In John 20, verse four, it says, Peter got there second. And I bet John enjoyed putting that in his gospel. <laughs> I bet. He was just like, <laughs> let me just put this little detail in there for eternity. 
I was first to the tomb. So I can imagine that Peter got there and he must have been a bit like, you know what it's like, just under his breath and grumbling a bit. But they walked away amazed, only to find out that their amazement turned to the purest joy because Jesus was risen and remains risen, the only risen Lord. But then Jesus takes an opportunity to restore Peter. Peter says he wants to go fishing. The other disciples say, we'll go with you, and they go fishing. And then John sees Jesus on the shore and says, it's the Lord. And Peter thinks to himself, honestly, I believe this. I'm not gonna be second this time. Takes off his outer garments, he jumps in the water, and he swims to shore ahead of the boat. He gets there first. So kudos to you, Peter, because he managed to actually then cross the finish line first, and he gets to the Lord, and the Lord then begins to restore him beautifully. He asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And the Lord admonishes him. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He restores Peter. That restoration went so deep that Peter was used to start the church by the Lord. Peter was the one that preached the sermon that saw the beginning of the church come to pass. In the book of Acts, he stands up and he preaches to the crowd after the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. We're talking about 50 days since Jesus' crucifixion. 3,000 people are added to the church that day. Now, Peter preached to many more than 3,000. Those are just the ones that got saved. The crowd was much bigger than 3,000 people. It was 3,000 people in the crowd that came forward and gave their lives to the Lord and the church was born. Now keep in mind, this is the same Peter that denied his Lord and his God, even with oaths and curses, to a servant girl and another servant girl and a small group of people is now being used by the Lord to start the church with thousands. What an incredible testimony to the resurrection power of God in someone's life. Now let's not leave it there. Some of you might feel you've denied the Lord. You're somehow not where you're meant to be. Something has happened and you need his restoration. Do you think he loves you any less than Peter? Don't you think that the great shepherd would not come alongside you and restore you and love on you if you would let him? I pray that today would be a day of restoration in your life if that is you, either watching, sitting, or listening. May the Lord show you his deepest mercy. I wanna share another story with you of his resurrection power displayed. And this is what I would call a, a, a stone's crying out story. What I mean by that is when Jesus came into Jerusalem the week before he was crucified, his disciples went before him proclaiming his praises and the Pharisees of the day said, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus responds in Luke 19, 40, I tell you, if these keep quiet, the stones would immediately cry out. So I've got a stone crying out story for you. And this actually begins in AD 136. The Jews hated the Romans. They hated Roman rule. And uh, Emperor Hadrian was ruling at the time in AD 136, and he'd built a temple to Jupiter on the Temple Mount site. Very clever of him. I'm sure that he thought he'd get no trouble for that. Um, but uh, in fact, the Jews rose up, and they began a revolt. There was a previous revolt in AD 70 where the temple had been destroyed, 
But the land of Judea was actually still left pretty much untouched in that rebellion. But this rebellion, the Romans were having none of it. And they not only crushed the rebellion, it was called the Bar Kochba revolt. Bar Kochba, they actually, there was a man that they thought was the Messiah. And this Bar Kochba means son of the star. As we know, Jesus, the star came over Jesus. So this man had nothing to do with the Lord. And this revolt actually resulted in the utter destruction of the land of Israel to such an extent that even the crops and fields were destroyed. And one of the crops was of a date palm tree called the Judean date palm tree, native to Israel. Unique dates, totally different from your average dates. I think you call it the Majul dates. Forgive me if that's pronounced wrong. But these Judean date palms were wiped out. The plant extinct for 2,000 years, gone. Erased from the pages of history, apparently. Then there was an excavation on Masada in the 1960s. And one of the things that was excavated was Judean date palm seeds. But they'd been baking for 2,000 years in 40 degree heat in the Dead Sea Valley. They might as well have been little stones for the life they had in them, apparently, once again. They were put into a jar for 40 years, and then along came a doctor, a certain Sarah Salen, and she asked for some of the seeds to try and plant them. And she was granted three seeds after a year's worth of asking, so she was persistent. She took these to a certain Elaine Soloway, who was a botanist, and she rehydrated them. I would say that's a very important step. Um, planted them, and lo and behold, one of them sprouted and grew. It was a male date palm, and they named him, it, Methuselah, <laughs> after the oldest man in the Bible. And as he began to grow and thrive, they tried to get more seeds. It took them almost 15 years. And they got another 30 seeds, and some of these seeds were taken from Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. More seeds were found. 30 were planted, and six more plants came up. Of the six, two were female, the first, Hannah in the Bible whose womb had been closed. Now this doctor said she chose Hannah because her mother's name was Hannah. I'm like, no, no, you chose it because God named your mother Hannah. Because his fingerprints were all over this process. Because these two female Judean date palms have matured. They started producing crops through the cross-pollination with Methuselah. They got another one called Adam as well. I thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> but we've got a 2,000 year extinct plant come back to life. After baking in the desert for 2,000 years at 40 degree heat, this little seed germinates. Now, let me put this into perspective for your life. If the Lord has spoken a word of your life, that is his seed, that is his word in your life. Amen. 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 Now, if that is dry and dusty, how can it possibly be more dry and dusty than that Judean date palm seed? It's impossible. Jeremiah 1 verse 12 says, the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I'm actively watching over my word to fulfill it. It's like he's hovering over that word over your life. I'm sorry if you're in the midst of difficult circumstances, but he hasn't forgotten his word over you. Don't you forget his word over you. Amen. Amen. I want to share two scriptures of just how much the Lord loves you. Matthew 10 verse 29 to 31 says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. He's counted the hairs on your head. Let me give you the Old Testament version. It's beautiful. Psalm 56 verse eight says, you number my wanderings. Put my tears, my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Not one single tear you have cried over any distress or disappointment or heartache has not been caught and recorded by the living God. Not one single hair has not been counted. Do not believe that he doesn't love you today, that he doesn't love his promises over your life, that he doesn't have resurrection power for you right where you're at to resurrect you just like he did for Peter, just like he did these 2,000-year-old Judean date seeds. His word will always accomplish that for which it is spoken. It never gets dry and dusty. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please turn to Genesis 11 as we're about to go into the last point. Now, here's, here's a clue. You should find it pretty easy. First book in the Bible. There you go. Just go to the front of the book. You'll be all right. Genesis 11, 26 to 28, then 31 to 32. My third point is when you're stuck, his resurrection, life is available for you, just as I shared with you. Of what happened for Peter, it's for you. But let's read together of a man who got stuck. And the man who got stuck was actually Abram's father, Terah. Genesis 11, 26 to 28 and 31 to 32. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Other versions say he died before his face, or he died in his presence. Very traumatic for Terah. And Terah took his sons, Abram, and his grandson, Lot, the son of Aaron, and his daughter-in-law, Sarah, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Haran means mountaineer or mountainous. Terah's son was called Haran. After his son passed, he took his family. The first movement of Abram to the promised land was actually through his father. His father gets up with an idea to move to the promised land. He comes to a place that is named after his son who has passed away. And he sets up camp there and he passes away there. He passed away in his season of grief grieving for his son. He passed away in the name, in the place of the same name as his son. And I wanna tell you that no season of heartache is meant to be our dwelling place, our permanent residence, like Tira in Haran. Today is the day of the empty tomb, the day Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the day he made his resurrection power available to us. Let us trust him in our grief, in our despair, in our disappointment, and seek him for his resurrection power for us. That we wouldn't get stuck in the mountains of our troubles and our woes and our trials and our heartache and our disappointments. Some of those things do take time to process. Grief over the loss of a loved one is certainly something that takes time. You don't rush through that. But that is still not meant to be our final resting place in this life because his resurrection power is available to us 
to promote us out of there and deliver us. But then the question is how? How do we do that? If you would bear with me for a couple more minutes, I'd love to share this with you. Please turn to Jonah 2. If I can give you an advice, it's after the book of Genesis. All right, there we go. I'll give you a moment to get there, and then we'll read together. I want to read from Jonah 2, verse 7 to 9. Now, while you're turning there, let me just say, Jonah had the call of God upon, him, upon his life as a prophet to go and speak to the wicked city of Nineveh to proclaim God's judgment was coming. When he heard the call, he ran from the call. He gets on a ship, and he goes to Tarsus. The Lord brings up a storm, and the sailors on the ship throw him into the sea, at which point he is swallowed by a huge fish. And that is where we're going to pick it up in Jonah now. 2 verse 7 to 9. Jonah prays a prayer here. I'm going to go through this prayer carefully because this is what you do when you're stuck. Tira was stuck. You might be stuck somewhere, somehow. You're stuck. Let's read this prayer and see what, what Jonah prayed to get unstuck. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. When he was stuck, he looked up. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. He focused on the Lord. He focused on the Lord, he looked up. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. That's a capital M. Those who have idols in their life, it can even be something that's just a greater focus than the Lord himself, such as your heartache or your difficulty, your trial or your trouble. If that is a greater focus than the Lord, it is actually idolatrous because you're giving it more attention than him. He's the solution. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. I will pay what I have vowed. I will do what you are asking me to do. The first thing that we should do when we are stuck is live a life of dedication to him. Rededicate yourself to him. Just say, I'm yours, I'm looking to you, I'm stuck, but I'm trusting that salvation is of the Lord. I'm sorry for focusing on these things more than you. I repent of that, I lay it down. I look to you for your life, your resurrection life, to redeem me from where I'm stuck. I wanna get through the mountains of Haran, I wanna get to the promised land in Jesus' name. Amen. One more thing I wanna share with you is pray to become a prisoner of hope. Have you ever heard that? It's in the Bible word for word. Zechariah 9 verse 12 says, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. Prisoners of hope. It speaks about being more captivated by God in your life than captivated by your problems. There's a deeper captivation to holding on to your trust in him than to allowing what's surrounding you to be the loudest voice. Because I'm telling you that after Jonah prayed that prayer, the fish spat him out. Because the Lord was more interested in a deliverance within him first than a deliverance in his circumstances first. And the word is a two-edged sword that we would pierce our own souls. We use it against the enemy, but we also pierce our own souls. That we can have Christ formed within us by the power of his word that we can become prisoners of hope. And through being prisoners of hope, nothing surrounding us will be able to hold us. I do just want to declare, and I'll close with this, and then release the service. As a prisoner of hope, there is no furnace that can consume you. Just ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
As a prisoner of hope, there is no prison that can hold you. Just ask Paul and Silas and even Joseph. As a prisoner of hope, there is no storm that can drown you. Just ask Jonah and Paul. And finally, as a prisoner of hope, there is no tomb that can keep you in the grave. Just ask Jesus. Amen. Bless you, everyone. Thank you so much for coming today.